the intro. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, no foreplay? Uh, well, I think we did it on the walkover. I guess that's true. Okay. This is The Jewish Frame, a Jewish podcast about movies and a movie podcast about Jewishness. I'm Ben Shin. I'm Rabbi Dan Hain. And we are going to be talking about This Must Be the Place, the 2010 Paolo Sorrentino movie starring Sean Penn and Francis McDormand and some other great performances in there. But before we start... What if it's gross? What was the gross here? Nothing. I mean, this movie, I actually looked up the box office and it made pretty much nothing <laughs> in the United States, which is why I wanted to preface this by saying that if people have not seen this movie, because I don't think anybody has seen this movie, then I think we agree it's worth seeing. Yeah, 100%. Right. So it's actually on HBO, HBO Max, Max right now. So if you're listening and you haven't seen the film and you have HBO Max or you want to, you know, you can rent it from the services, whatever. And you've seen that photo of Sean Penn with all the makeup and you're like, that movie, I'm not going to watch that movie. I was there for eight years also. I just saw the photo. I went on to the next. That's right. Right. So stop, stop, watch the movie, come back because we're going to be spoiling it in all kinds of ways. If I, you know what, is this a movie that can even be spoiled? Not really. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess the ending, you could spoil the ending. You could. I mean, it is narrative, but the narrative is only part of it, really. I mean, yes, we could tell the whole story. And that's why I'm saying people should see it because it's, you know, we're going to talk about it. You will not understand the movie from people talking about it. I mean, this really is a movie of sight and sound. You have to see it. You have to hear it. It's, it's an aesthetic experience. And this is what we talked about before we uh, turned on the recording, is that uh, it's a very, it's like going to a museum and looking at a painting. I think the more we, it's not a heady film. It's really an artist film, and it's supposed to elicit emotions. Um, there are non sequiturs. It doesn't necessarily fit together. It's hard to understand the relationships, sometimes even between the characters. Uh, and yet, it packs an emotional punch, in particular towards the ending, which we'll talk about when we get there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very effective. Yes. And it's not hard to watch. I mean, it's not like a... It's the only Holocaust movie my wife will watch. Oh, it is wow. the only one. She doesn't want to watch Holocaust movies, um, uh, having been exposed to too many of them at an early age, as many of us were. But this is a movie that deals with the Holocaust. It is a Holocaust movie. It, 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 you can it's Jews versus Nazis. Add, you can add it to our list of Jews versus Nazis. It certainly fits into that category. And yet... Uh, it doesn't resemble anything like a Jews versus Nazi film that has that was ever filmed previously, I don't think. I think that's fair to say. So I'm going to give a very brief synopsis because there's not really that much plot. The plot basically is there's a guy called Cheyenne, played by Sean Penn, who was a pop star in the 80s. And you, when the movie begins... He's in Dublin, Ireland, 
he hasn't performed in 20 years, 30 years. I think the movie set well in 2008, which also is sort of important. Oh yes. That's all. We should talk about that too. That's odd as well. Yes. So he's in Dublin with his wife and just living off his investments. And he finds out that his father is dying. He comes back to the United States. His father, he goes like to, I don't know, Borough Park or whatever. Clearly a very uh, Jewish um, which is community. Where he's from, which is where Cheyenne is from. Which is where he's from. His, he gets there too late. His father is dead. He finds out that his father during his life was trying to find out the whereabouts of um, the German who was a guard in Auschwitz when he was imprisoned there. And Cheyenne decides that he's going to go find this Nazi. Complete the mission his father didn't. Right. And he travels all the way across the country, has various adventures, meets people along the way, and in the end, catches up with the Nazi that he's searching for. That's pretty much the plot. It's not very complicated, but this is a two-plus-hour movie, and... Well, you missed something. You missed a little color. Cheyenne, the Sean Penn character, goes around to Borough Park and to the Nazi, people who've been hunting the Nazis, Mordechai Midler, played by Judd Hirsch, who's dedicated a life to hunting down Nazis, and he goes to hunt down the Nazis... But he has not changed his look from no. the 80s. And for those of you familiar with the band The Cure, for this movie, Sean Penn has adopted Robert Smith's makeup. So he wears the white makeup, and very bright red lipstick, which is played for jokes at times in the movie in which Sean Penn gives lipstick advice to a bunch of women in the, ho- in the elevator. Uh, And he looks like Robert Smith from The Cure. So it is jarring to see an aging rock star taking up this Nazi hunting mission. It just, none of it seems to make any sense at all. Yeah, he's so incongruous. (laughs) I mean, his whole look is so incongruous because you've never really seen it on a 50-year-old man. Well, if you've seen what Robert Smith looks like. I guess he still looks like that. But Robert Smith, he kept... Robert Smith never changed his makeup, right? Kiss got rid of the makeup at one point. That's right. Robert Smith never took it off. Well, because it wasn't a costume. It was a persona. That's a different conversation. You want to go there? You want to talk about that? The difference between a costume and a persona? Um, Well... Okay, so I think that's a relevant question because at the very end of this movie, spoiler alert, he removes the costume for the first time in 30 years. Right. Um, So does he remove his persona? Does he uncover who he is at that point? Is he hiding? And I think there's the subtext of what it means to be an adult, to grow up. Yes. And there seems to be judgment, which I think if there's one part of the movie that didn't resonate with me is that the makeup he's wearing is a sign of adolescence. And he has to scrub off the makeup in order to grow up and be an adult. And he's hiding behind it as a child. I think that's the message the movie's putting forward. I agree. And I think that's 
one of Sorrentino's sort of themes that he comes back to elsewhere. I mean, you've seen The Young Pope. Yes. Which he did as a um, 10-episode series for HBO. He created it, and he directed the whole thing, which is unusual. stunningly beautiful as well. Yeah. It's unusual, I think, for a single director to direct every episode of a series. It's usually the first and the last. Yeah, they'll do the fast, the first and, yeah, maybe the last. Um, But he, he directed all of them. And that's a big theme in that as well as, you know, the things you carry with you from childhood and that you have to get past them in order to really grow up. And that's definitely in this film, right? He has this clearly unresolved stuff with his father. He talks about how his father didn't love him or he thought his father didn't love him. And you definitely get the sense that he's in a state of arrested development. He's just stuck for like 30 years. He doesn't work. He doesn't grow. You just get the sense he's he kind just of frozen. Plays Pelota he plays Pelote with pool. his wife in the in the empty swimming pool, which itself I think is a symbol of well, emptiness. <laughs> I mean, couldn't be more obvious. It's it's a pool that he's never filled up with water. Well, Francis McDermott has the line that puts the pin right on this. Where because you get a sense in his, you know, his day-to-day life is not super exciting. Um, and he says at one point to Francis McDermott, who plays his wife, his longtime wife, they've been friends for, they've been married for 30 years. So they have a relationship. She's a weird character in the movie. She's a volunteer firefighter. I don't, you know, she's very, (laughs) she's as eccentric as he is. Yeah. Um, what was the point I was making? You said that she said something. Oh yeah. So what she says to, thank you very much. She says to him, he says, I think I'm depressed. And I think this is, you know, key here. He says, no, you're not depressed, you're bored. And I think that's kind of the emptiness. He's stuck where he has no purpose and he mistakes that purposelessness for depression. And then his father dies and he now has a purpose, a mission that he takes on and his boredom or his depression lifts. Yeah. And that comes in again at the very end or close to the end when the Judge Hirsch character, Mordechai, Mordechai Midler. Mordechai Midler. I, I was, I was, this is the most Jewish Judd Hirsch has ever been. Now, I know that that seems like it's hyperbole, but it is the most Jewish he's ever been. And that's a high bar. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, he turns up the Jew quotient beyond where it ever should be. Yeah. And Judd Hirsch, he can't, he's never played he's never a non Jewish character. Right. You just couldn't even it's imagine. Just, it. It's full of schmaltz yeah it is just heavy it's so thick his role it is thick but at the end he says because cheyenne oh yeah he says you know i spend mordechai midler says i spend my life traveling from place to place in hotels and in cars and i have loved every minute of it and i think you loved it too and Sean Penn says, yes, you're right. And he says, I think, and Judd Hirsch says, you know why? Because you needed a distraction. And, and Cheyenne says, yeah, yeah, I did. I did need a distraction. I mean, the whole thing is he feels like he needs something to, to bring him out of his kind of stuckness. And even before his father dies, he's talking to his friend. I can't remember his name, this Irish guy. 
Oh, yes. The right. Irish guy who has these sordid stories, sexual exploits. <laughs> yeah, he just tells him about it's his... random. <laughs> yeah, it is random. It is random. Um, yeah, so he's talking to his friend. And he's like, I think I need to, you know, get out of here. And he says, well, where are you going to go? Look. And he says, he points like across the sea. And he says, look over there. You know what there is over there? Taxes. You don't want to go there. So that's even before his father dies. He has, he's getting this feeling that he's, he's got to go do something. And then I think when his father dies, he, he jumps to get out of there. And then when there's a possible mission in front of him, he's, you know, he's ready. He's like, yeah, I need, I need something. Why does he make... Okay, so this is really nice. This Must Be The Place, obviously, is the name of the Talking Heads song. David Byrne makes an appearance, a cameo. The song is a, played several times, a recurring theme. And the song begins, Home, it's where I want to be. So where is home for Cheyenne? Well, it's Dublin. He's not a Dubliner. Yeah, but he... He starts there. I mean, the movie, he starts there and he ends up there. And, and you definitely get the sense at the end of the movie that it's a homecoming. And that even as he takes off the makeup, whatever that means, that that's the place where he wants to begin this new chapter of his life. And he has friends there. Yeah, it's, it's not New York. He's not going to go live in Borough Park. He's not going to go live in the West Village next to David Byrne. That's all over, clearly. It was over even, I mean, it seems like he even knew when all that was happening that he just kind of lucked into it. Well, I, I guess the reason I'm asking is there is something about the nature of homelessness that's very much a part of the Jewish experience. And the movie is uh, the name, the song "Home is where I want to be," you know. And I think of that almost famous line, you know, the line from Almost Famous, where they're in the tour bus, and Patrick Fugit says to um, what was her what's her name? Kate Hudson. Kate Hudson says, "I just want to go home." And Kate Hudson goes, "You are home." Right, and then you remember that scene, the tiny dancer scene. You didn't like that movie. You're not a Cameron Crowe fan. I don't know. I I saw it once, and I was like, "This is okay." Not the best Cameron Crowe movie, in my opinion. No, it's not the best Cameron Crowe movie. But anyway, that idea that the home is the tour bus—that's very Jewish. Like the home is the journey. Life is what happens. Well, that's Biggie Mordecai Midler's home. That's right. His home and is on the road. Cheyenne's home. Which is why the Dublin thing is so striking. And next to that hideous 21st century football field, next to those beautiful old Irish homes, it's so jarring visually to see that. Like, you're wondering, why did they put that hideous football stadium there? Like, I couldn't help but wonder that every time I saw it. Well, it's striking looking. It's disgusting. It's awful. I don't, I, I, I didn't think it was It's that so, bad. but you have, uh, well, that's, okay, so that's my value judgment. So, okay, that's my own value judgment. We can cut that out. But there is something that feels so quaint about the little Irish town next to this monstrosity. Uh, well, it's not a little Irish town. It's Dublin. 
It's the biggest city in the country. All right. Well, all right. Okay. Well, there's but something no, about the I, old and the new clashing with it's each other. Definitely, that is jarring. You see Fine. the the old style yes. row houses. Yes. yes. And behind it it's, is this postmodern uh, football stadium. That's yes. Right. It's, that's right. It's visually jarring to see those two next Well, the day. same way that Cheyenne is visually jarring sort of everywhere he goes. Do you know what's the quote? Talk about the boys who took their lives and the quote on the tombstone. Oh, what was the, what oh, was the quote? The quote? No. And you, cause you see it for like half a second. So there, there are these two Dublin boys who were brothers. Right. Brothers. Yeah. Who were big Cheyenne fans when he was popular. And if you, you know, the cure and it was certainly in the genre of depressive music. Uh, and uh, he visits along with a young girl who was a, a fan, I suppose, a friend and a fan of his. It's unclear. Yeah, she's a big fan. She's a big fan of his, and they visit the um, the grave of the two boys who took their lives 30 years back, and he gets yelled at by the parents of the boys and told that he's unwelcome at their grave. Uh, and he... So he carries that. He carries that, I think, as a source of sadness. And you get the sense, I mean, that's why he's there. You, I mean, I felt. Well, yeah, that, so yeah. Keep the low going. taxes. Well, keep going with that. Yeah. Because the Dublin part, I, I got hung up there. I don't know why he's in Dublin. Well, he says when he visits New when York. Paolo Sorrentino's not an Irish director. No, he's not Irish. He's Italian, very Italian. The writer is Italian. Everybody behind the camera in this movie pretty much is Italian. I mean, the whole crew, it's its all his Italians. But he decided, I'm going to make a movie in the U.S. I'm going to use American actors, do it part in Dublin and part in the U.S. Tax breaks, tax breaks. Well, you got the tax breaks. But, I mean, the American stuff, it had to be in the U.S. That stuff's all got to be shot on location. In the United States, I and mean, it's a it's like a road movie as well. So, well, when he gets to New York, he after he visits his father who's dead already, he goes to a David Byrne concert. David Byrne wrote the music. I mean, other than you know the song being featured heavily, David Byrne also the score wrote the score for the movie, and he goes to a David Byrne concert. Where so disappointing to me. He does this must be the place, but it's like what a minute? Seconds, yeah, yeah. I was like, I just, I, you know, show it. I mean, I would watch that forever. I would have watched well, that, that whole was, concert. Was part of his American Utopia, right? Isn't that? Wasn't that too early? I think was it? Oh, it? right. It's probably too early. That's yeah, true. yeah. I mean, it would have been filmed in yeah. two thousand nine, maybe. I think it's too early. <laughs> um, but it, it is, you know, it's some kind of stage show that he's doing and it sounds great and it looks cool and you're like yeah Keep sorrentino like hang out like <laughs> i i don't know maybe this outtakes or something where you see more of it anyway um so yeah well, when he talks to david byrne afterwards and david byrne's like yeah man like you're 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 you know you're cool what's what's david wrong not not a great actor. Not a great actor. No, he has. He seems to be what, having. What do you mean, Cheyenne? Yeah, <laughs> he seems to be. Well, on the one hand, 
he seems to be having trouble playing himself. <laughs> yes. But on the other hand, if you talk to David Byrne, I don't know that he would behave Any that differently, differently yeah. in real life. He's kind of an awkward guy. <laughs> um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, because Cheyenne says, oh, you're this great artist and, you know, you're making, you know, you're creative and everything. And David Byrne says, well, you were too when you were performing. And he says, that's bullshit. I was a pop star and I you know, latched onto a good thing and made a bunch of money and two boys listened to my music and killed themselves. And I visit their graves every week thinking it will help. And it doesn't, it just makes it worse. And from that, I got the sense that that was part of why he was in Dublin because he felt he needed to be I don't know, close to the scene of the crime. Due to Shuva, if you will? Well, this is, you know, it's a special segment called, like, you know, Ben's Dumb Theories. But yeah, this is my theory of the film, is that um, probably without meaning to, uh, Sorrentino made a film about Shuva. Because the other part of the opening line of... What do you mean without mis- meaning? Well, he, what is, he doesn't know what He's he, made a Holocaust movie. Kinda. So what, he, Holocaust movie? He doesn't know about Teshuva? He's made a I, Holocaust movie. I, I think if you said Teshuva to Paul Sorrentino, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. Why would he? It's about the homeless Jew who has to go back and He's not homeless. Something. He's, he's got a He's mansion. living in Dublin. He's homeless. Doesn't say much for Dublin. No, but he's not supposed to be in Dublin. He's a fish out of water in Dublin. That, that's pretty clear. It's a fish out of water everywhere, right? There is no place. Dublin is, is is the best he's got. Uh, I think he's fine on the Lower East Side. Well, maybe, maybe not. But he doesn't want that. He feels an imposter in that context. Um, but anyway, as I was going to say, the second part of that line is, home is where I want to be. Pick me up and turn me round. And and so I think that plays into the Shuva angle. He feels this guilt. He can escape it. And... Uh, after 30 years, the only thing he can think to do is to try something different, right? Which is, I think, part of what Shuva is about, Absolutely. is about getting yourselves out of stuckness Got by opening yourself up to something and else. And going back to the source or going back to the origin to not be afraid to look at who you've been, not be like, again, your Teshuva theory is on point because he's been stuck in a rut for 30 years and he's refused to look at these things. He's refused. If you take the direct, I'm not sure about the makeup thing, but if you take that, he's refused to look at why he's still wearing the makeup. He refused to look at why he's sitting around bored all day long, selling stocks. He refused, you know, to look at his relationship with his father. So there's all of these things that he has been ignoring in Teshuvah, the high holidays. It's all about blowing a shofar and saying, guys, what aren't you looking at? So his death as is common for a lot of people, sparks the opportunity for him to go back and to evaluate his life and to do the teshuva, which is why I think it's so interesting. He goes back to Borough Park and the relationship he has with Midler. Midler at one point tells him, your father loved you, but Midler's lying to him. Yeah. And he knows Midler's lying to him. And it's so awesome because like Midler is trying to say the thing to comfort the kid that he never had, but he's lying and Sean Penn knows he's lying. 
So when Sean Penn tells him he knows he's lying, and it's kind of a sweet moment, is is he says, you know, your father, your father loved you, loved you very and he says, how did how do you know? And he says he told me, and Sean Penn says. That's not true, but it's very nice of you to say. And they both kind of smile. <laughs> and and John Hirsch knows as he's saying it that he won't believe it. <laughs> Can you explain the woman in the window to me? She seems to play a very prominent role. Yeah, well, this is a whole other subplot. Yes. Which is, I didn't understand until I'd seen it for maybe the second or third time. Well, because you don't really understand any of the relationships. They no. don't explain who this goth girl hanging out. Then he's trying to set up the goth girl with the guy yeah. who works at the mall. And like you don't understand who any of these people are. No, well, this is what's sort of interesting about the movie is that all this stuff that a, a, usually you would expect a filmmaker to spend time on as set up gets sort of dealt with very, very quickly that it's easy. You blink and you kind of miss it. Like when they show the gravestone, you blink, you'll, you'll miss it. You you'll miss pause. the fact that That's there's right. two brothers and a quote and a quote. And, you know, you barely even know his name is Cheyenne at that point. You, even pick you it barely up. even know. Right. That's right. And, uh, yeah. So the woman in the window is the mother of she, what's her name? His friend, Maybe it'll come to me. Anyway, so he's got this this girl, is this, this young girl, I don't know, she's like 18, 18 17. 19, 17, um, is his friend and a big Cheyenne and the Fellas, which was that's a ridiculous Terrible. name for a band, but that was the name of his band. Um, and her mother is sort of completely depressed, almost catatonic, and sitting in a chair, smoking cigarettes because her son has disappeared for the like 30 days ago he disappeared that's all you know and his name is tony and yeah that's all you know and you know that she's just brokenhearted because she doesn't know where he is and you know that sort of i don't know parallels in a way the the two brothers. It's, I mean, for a while, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't tease them apart. It's like, is is one of her children committed suicide or no? He just disappeared. Her son, Tony. Is, is Tony sisters? Is Tony's sister his friend? Yes, Tony's sister is his friend, and that's why when he he tries to set her up with this guy, um, uh, what's his name? Dan Donald or something. no? He's got a very he's got another Irish name. Um, but he tries to set her up with a guy and he he invites them both over for dinner to set him up. And he says, oh yeah, I've got six brothers and oh my gosh, they're such a pain. I wish they would just disappear off the face of the earth sometimes. <laughs> and the girl bursts into tears and runs off to the bathroom. And I he's didn't like, catch that. Yeah. And he's like, what did I, totally I say? Totally missed that. I totally yeah, yeah. Mi I've, I've seen the movie three times. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Yeah. So Oh, so wow. it's her brother and that woman. And how is do her you know mother. 30 days? Where, where did you hear that? Because the mother says at some point, she says something like, 30 days, how could he not let us know where he is or whatever? She, she, at some point, she mentions 30 days as how long he's, he's been gone. And all throughout the movie, uh, people are saying, Has anybody heard from Tony? And so I assume that's that's Tony is who they're all 
looking for and waiting for, and she's there waiting by the phone. And speaking of a shofar, when he finds out that his father's died, it's the loud ring on the telephone. There's a great shot of of it, like focuses on the phone, and she hands the receiver to him, and it's like this moment of it's almost Hitchcockian sort of moment of tension. And then the next thing is is he's you know telling his wife that he's he's got to go back to uh, to New York um, after he cooks her a pizza. Uh, that's before so, he, he, so he cooks her a frozen so strange, pizza. So oh, odd. so this is another theme of the movie that he's always carrying. Yeah, something. what is that? Yeah, I mean, he's I, carrying around a piece of luggage, and right. Well, and at home, and there's a whole story about at home. He's carrying around like a shopping cart. Yes, you know, he looks like a bag yes. lady shuffling around with a shopping. Um, you know, like one of those carts that you bring to the supermarket, right? And wheel home. He's he's got one of those with him all the time. All the time. You know, I mean, when he hasn't just been to the supermarket and then, yeah, when he travels to New York and is traveling across the country, you always see him with his wheeled bag behind him. And I'm assuming Harry it's... Harry Dean Stan, right? It doesn't Harry, Harry Dean, Dean Stan. He so has right. a cameo, right? About, yes. about wheels on luggage. Yes, he shows up at the end of the movie and he tells him that he's the guy that invented wheeled luggage. I remember luggage before wheels. I'm old oh, enough sure. to, yes. We all, yeah, of course. It wasn't that long ago. And Harry Dean Stanton says, I, every night I l- lay awake asking myself, why didn't <laughs> anybody think of it before? And Sean Penn says, why the fuck are you wondering that every night? And Harry Dean Stanton says, because I'm the guy that invented it. And Sean Penn is like, flabbergasted right he's he's odd i mean if you met the guy who invented wheeled luggage in the middle of nowhere in utah um you'd probably be pretty amazed too harry dean stanton so, so good, good. So <laughs> so good. Secure. i mean so amazing yeah but there are also how many threads in this movie that just never get picked up like the pieces of shit like yeah. the pieces of shit pay a prominent part just pieces of shit is the name of the band so He's in the mall and in the beginning, yeah. In the beginning. And then he hears this band play. And then the band leader sees that Cheyenne took note of them playing and then shows up at his house asking him to produce his album. And he says, I'm not a producer. And he says, You could do whatever you want. You just can't change the name of the band. Says, What's the name of the band? Guy says, Pieces of shit. And they both, that's a great name. Yeah, yeah Sean Penn. And Sean Penn like takes a big pause and then says, that's a really good name. His performance. Can we talk about his performance? I don't know what there is to say. Yes, go. You start. I mean, Sean Penn for me is hit or miss. Sometimes he goes way too far. He's a very actory actor. You know, I, I feel like when he's... He commits. When he's let loose... He's he, you know, he's like you know Al Pacino. He's one of these actors that if you just let him go as far as they're going to go, they'll go way too far. And I think Sean Penn has been well. The scene, the that. David Byrne scene, he goes pretty far in that. He scene. does, but there are a couple of moments right where he's he, very whiny. He's a very adolescent whiny. Yeah, that's the the characterization, absolutely. But I I really like this performance in this film. It could have been 
really wrong. It could have gone wrong, really wrong in so many ways because the character is so weird and the characterization of voice and his physicality and the face, it's all so strange. I have something I have to ask you. Tell me, no, obviously people are on a podcast. They're not going to be able to see me do this, but explain to me what is. So yeah, he's throughout the movie, there's a, it's a tell. It's what's called a tell. If you've ever played poker and you're playing poker, someone does something that tells you what their cards are. So every time something happens in the movie, which maybe you can tell me why he does it. I'm not sure. That disappoints him, that is frustrating to him, that angers him. He takes a puff of air and he blows his hair back. Even when it's not on his face. Like that. Yeah. Uh, And it's a sign of disdain, I think he does it. Um, but it's pointed. It's, there's, there's, (laughs) it's for a purpose, but I don't know what the purpose is. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's expressing something, but I don't, I don't know what it is. Well, it's an affect. It's an affect. Oh my gosh, yes. Well, and there's another tell. I don't know if it's a tell. A, a repeated something that comes up when he says, there's something not quite right here. I I don't don't know what. But something, he says that like, what, five, six different times in the film, in in all kinds of different situations. And to me, it, it it's just indicative of this thing of there's something, the thing that's not quite right is him. And well, he's he, too sensitive. And I think that. But he's also a kind of jerk sometimes. I mean, this is why I really like that character. Like he's not, he's not Edward Scissorhands. He's, he's not a naive, even though he's like, you know, like we've said, sort of adolescent in some ways. He doesn't smoke because only adults smoke. He doesn't smoke, but he's snarky. He's sometimes a little mean. He, you know, is a bit of a trickster sometimes. He's, he's not like a, a Forrest Gump. You know what I'm saying? He's not that kind of a, a character. He's not um, innocent. He's not an innocent. He's, he's got a sense of humor. There's like a real person there who's not all lovely and sweet. He like, there's that scene where the, he's in a diner and there are kids playing ping pong and the ping pong book all ping pong ball goes in his drink and he picks up the ping pong ball and he just holds onto it like he's going to crush it. And the kid's like, hey, do, you know, we're sorry. We, we, you know, what does he say? It's like it was an accident or, and he says- It wasn't an accident. You weren't playing properly. It's like, it's not a, it's, it's not a matter of whatever. It's a matter of not knowing how to play ping pong. And then you see him playing ping pong with a guy and he like waits, he's about to serve oh, and, yeah. he, and he waits until the, the other guy looks away and then he serves and wins the points. Um, so he's a kid. And he hands him the check. He's a kid. Oh, and he hands him his check. That's right. Uh, yeah, he's a little bit of a kid, but he also, like in his first conversation with Mordecai Midler, Midler's talking about how the guy that his father was looking for was small potatoes, not worth his time. And Sean Penn says, oh, yeah. And he's got this, like, right, this sort of high-pitched voice. Says, yeah, you're right. You know, the, the, the bigger Nazis, 
Yeah, that would get you more publicity. Yeah, show business. I guess Nazi hunting also I, depends on the rules of show business. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's not the kind of thing a kid would say. That's a, you know. Oh, and he gets under Midler's skin when he points that out, because yeah. it's true. Well, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Um, but what I guess what I'm saying is, I I think it's a... I think it's a good performance. I think it's a really good performance and maybe even one of Sean Penn's better performances. And it's kind of a shame that nobody in this country, at least, really saw it. So, yeah, you asked, you know, how did it do? The box office in the United 1. States. 1.2, what? No, it was like. 700,000. No, it was like 125,000 or something. It was nothing. Where would you have seen this movie? It, it uh, didn't open. House. Yeah, an house I think it opened in like three theaters. It was Lincoln Plaza on 63rd and Broadway. That's it where did, I would see it. It did eight million dollars in Italy. Wow. Yeah. So I think it wasn't even marketed here. It didn't open anywhere. I have a feeling that Sorrentino is kind of a big deal in Italy, and maybe it actually got marketed there as a. Sorrentino movie. But you have Francis McDermott, you have Sean Penn, you have, I mean, you've got a big enough cast, Judd Hirsch. Well, look, we've said this before. There is no room for uh, these kinds of movies in the American market anymore. They just don't exist. No, you need to be like an auteur. You need to... You need to be a director who's given a passion project to create something like this. I mean, those are the only movies that I see where anybody has any opportunity to do anything creative. It's just you have a director. If you're like P.T. Anderson. Well, that's the example I'll use. P.T. Anderson, you know, Licorice Pizza, which I've seen recently. and I You think that movie's... And I recommend it. Yeah. Uh, you think it's going to make money? I don't care. It's No, no, excellent. I understand. It's excellent. And it's such a passion project of P.T. Anderson's. It's obviously very personal. No one would make let him make that movie if he wasn't P.T. Anderson. It just wouldn't, wouldn't happen. Well, and how many times are they going to let him make that movie even though he is P.T. Anderson? I guess if it wins an Oscar. Maybe. Yeah, I guess so. But look, there's not that many directors like that. And even Licorice Pizza, he probably only get gets to make because i'm guessing it costs nothing there's no stars in that right it's not a single movie star no incorrect. no it's all no they're huge cameos yeah Sean Penn is in the movie Bradley oh really Cooper is in the movie but for like you they, know they, they have their they have their own distinct scenes tom waits is in the movie right but i'm they saying have their own distinct scenes but no the lead characters are Alana Haim and cooper hoffman and they're right. in every scene pretty much so right. it's just the two of them who've never appeared in anything before Right. But to make a movie with no special effects, with no already valuable IP, with a movie star, you just can't, you can't do hardly anymore. I mean, th yeah, there are exceptions. I heard actually the, uh, the Guillermo del Toro movie was Nightmare Alley. I heard that was pretty good. You know, that's, uh, you know, something different. Um, but who knows? It's been so weird, right? Who knows what'll, I, I don't know. What... I have started looking at movies for extras that tells you like, because I know when it was filmed, if there are no extras in the movie, like, oh, yeah. like you'll notice this now, if you go see a new movie, if there are no extras 
And almost all the scenes are like two people in a closed room. And like so many movies are sort of navigating around that. It's wild. Yeah. Well, I I think maybe Sorrentino is a case in point. He made this movie. Um, He made, I don't know what else he made after this, but, but then what did he do? A 10 episode series for hbo well that was the next thing i would say you kind of can do that like yeah that's succession what you do that's is, what you do is really good by the way if you don't watch succession that's i've seen it yeah you don't like it um it's cute it's i fine. don't know if it's, i it makes me get, laugh i didn't get really into it um but yeah you can do those hbo let yeah well, let's talk a little bit about the, the the tracking down of the nazi so once he decides to track down the nazi you're you really can't believe that this rock star is going to try to track down a nazi it's sort of, but he's so committed. I mean, he's doing a good job. Like well, he's doing lead. the job nobody else can do because he shows up at, um, I guess, the wife. Right. That's the one lead he has from his father. His father had found the Nazi's wife. And he goes and he pretends that he was John Smith, a student of hers in high school history. And he was re- he says, I was really taken by your class on the Holocaust. And she's taken aback by that. And then... Do you remember what he says to her about that? No, tell me. He says, why did they want to kill all the Jews? And she says, "Uh, it's a a hard question. He says, well, you know, a lot of books have been written on the subject and you're a historian. You must have some theory. And she says, they did it for their money. They wanted the Jews' money. And you kind of cringe when she says it. And Sean Penn says, but, you know, not all the Jews were rich. She's like, oh, they, they all had something. something. Then and you're like, leaves. oh, okay, she's the Nazi's wife. Okay. Then he leaves, and then he comes back in the middle of the night. <laughs> oh, the, oh, and my God. And Emily, Emily the duck or the swan oh, or whatever so that weird. is. Yeah. Right? And he's also, he's, he's, um, staking out the house from across the street. And while he's across the street, a guy walks past him in a Batman costume. (laughs) Remember? (laughs) Complete non sequitur. Is it Halloween? What's going on? It's never explained. Well, there was also that close up of the yak. Although, I mean, it wasn't a yak. It just occurred to me. I mean, Batman. He's seeking vengeance for his father, for his parents. Batman is uh, the Avenger. Very true. So he's like, okay, let's throw Batman here. I see that and I just think there was a guy walking on the street with that in Palosaur and he was like, oh, just get the shot. Like some of this, it just comes, I obviously I know that's not how films are directed, but it well, just seems so happenstance. Some of the beautiful shots. Yeah, but there's so some random. throwaway stuff. Like when he visits, um, when he goes to see Mordechai Mittler, he's talking to him in some office yeah. in the Diamond District. And there's a shot of the, you know, there's a shot of the Diamond District and all the, the, the Jewish diamond merchants. And on the street is a van. And on the van, it says, Paolo's Pizza. That can't be an accident. No, certainly not. Yeah. So he, there are all these visual gags in the film. You need a Rashi. Basically, you need a Rashi to go through all of these visual gags and tell you 
what they all represent. Like your Batman, Rashi is fantastic. I never would have thought of that. That's excellent. It just occurred to me. Yeah. Um, maybe it's r- right. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. But there's all these little things like there's the Batman, there's the Paolo's pizza, there's when he, he ends up taking a boat to the <laughs> US because he gets on the plane and it's too scary. And uh, on the boat, there's a woman he goes to the to the stern of the boat outside and there's the woman in a full leg cast because after his irish friend had told him this whole story about how he had had this you know life-changing sex with a woman in a full cast and then he goes in the boat and there's a woman with a full (laughs) cast on her leg um there's all this weird stuff like that that in this makes for beauty yeah, it's beautiful, but it's not just beautiful. It's a joke. It's funny. And you're not used to, you know, high-minded art cinema making jokes with that stuff. And I really appreciate Like in Glorious Bastards. Uh, yeah. Well, well that's that, another joke. We just did a jokey Nazi movie. Uh, that's jokey, but that doesn't feel like a art house movie i mean it does a little bit <laughs> no but you know what i'm saying that's 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 an art house sensibility smuggled into a big a, a kind of a genre movie yeah. right this is all kinds of weird stuff smuggled into an art house movie so then he goes and he sneaks into the house in the middle of the night and there's a a, a duck or a swan or it's a goose it's a goose thank you she's her. got a pet goose named emily yeah and he sneaks in. We don't know why. The m- woman comes down in the dark and drinks orange juice from from the box. Yep, straight out of the bottle. Straight out of the bottle. And doesn't notice Cheyenne standing there in the dark next to the goose. And then she closes the refrigerator door and he lifts the piece of art, which is from her son. Her grandson. Her grandson, yeah. Which has, I guess, the name of the town of the school that he goes to. And that's his next no, date. No, her great-grandson. No, it's her grandson. Because the woman is her daughter, no? No, the woman's her granddaughter. Who's the old lady in that scene? The old, suspicious-looking lady next to the teacher? Oh, you have no idea. Yeah, yeah, she's got like a roommate who's a, this other old lady. Who looks like a Nazi. She's also not great. Yeah, she's also Nazi-ish. Yeah. Yeah. But why? Like, why does she have a roommate? <laughs> so then, then she go, and then he goes and finds the woman's daughter or granddaughter. Granddaughter, yeah. It's unclear. No, no, because she says when he oh, talks right, to her, right? Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because her, her father's abroad in Hong Kong or that's Singapore right. or something. So it's her great-grandson. And Cheyenne then goes and seduces the mother. What do you mean? She asks to sleep with him, and he says no. Well, he says from the get-go, he's not interested in her in that way. I don't know. Maybe he seduces her very subtly. I think, so I think it's clear that he seduces her the only way that she can be seduced, and that's the genius of Cheyenne. Yeah. That's my read on it. And that- That he gets a swimming pool for the kid. And he's, that's, a, that's how he's able to track down yeah. where the Nazi is. 
That's right, because then, yeah, so he stays with her. And Mordechai Midler never could have gotten that information out of her. No one could have gotten it but Cheyenne. That's kind of the point. That's right, because he's willing to, well, this is what his friend says, right? His Irish friend, he says, when he's talking to him, uh, Cheyenne says, I don't get it. You have all these, you get all these women. You're not attractive. <laughs> You're not intelligent. You don't so seem Cheyenne have, says this to his friend. Yes, yeah, Cheyenne says this to his friend. You don't seem to have anything going on for you. How is it that you're able to get all these women? And his friend says two things. Curiosity and time. I am willing to spend months with these women, paying attention to them. And that's what they, that's what they really appreciate is... For them to feel, to make them feel like they are worth so much of somebody else's time. And he says, what about the curiosity? He says, the curiosity is what keeps you there <laughs> for six months, um, you know, uh, uh, before, it, before it works. And that's what he does. He spends time with this woman and her son and then, and she knows Cheyenne, so that helps. She's a fan of the band. Uh, and you she, know, she's a fan. She recognizes him. She knows him. Yeah. She wants to sleep with the rock star. I mean, I think that's yeah, implicit. maybe that's yeah. it too. Yeah, but it does not right away. He's there. You don't know how long he's there for. You, you got the sense he's there for some time. And yeah, and then and, in the middle of the night, she gives it away and he leaves. Yeah, she tells him about her, you know, great grandfather, her, her great grandfather, where. He's got a place in Utah, in a small town called Huntsville, Utah. And then the next thing, you know, she's asleep and Cheyenne is out the door. Yeah. So this is where I'm going to bring up my my other theory yeah. about the source material. Um, what is the source material? Well, I was thinking about it. It's like, eh, it's sort of like, there's definitely some kind of monomythic stuff in here, right? The journey, the quest. The, 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 you start the journey, it doesn't work, you take another route, you know, you meet characters along the way who some help you, some hinder you, right? This is all straight out of Joseph Campbell. And so I was like, okay, well, what kind of myths? Is it biblical? I don't know. Maybe some of it. Is it, it's, it's a journey. Is it, is, is, is this Homer? It's like, yeah, but I don't, I don't recognize stuff. And I was like, oh, these guys are Romans. <laughs> the filmmakers, they're all from Rome. Maybe it's the Aeneid, which is, you know, the myth of the founding of, of, of Rome. And then I looked up the Aeneid, which I have not read since I was in high school and read it in Latin. Um, and there's a lot of stuff. Good for you. There's a lot of stuff here from the Aeneid. Do you I still mean, read Latin? No, I died. I, I, no, I couldn't read any. Did Latin. you? You could read Latin. I did. I took Latin for five years. Wow. Um, in in middle school and high school, I took I took Latin from like yeah seventh through twelfth grade. I think. And it fits the need. Some of it. So um, there's a part where you know he tries. I mean, this is from this is I think from is it from the Odyssey? It's yeah, it's Agamemnon. It's the same thing with Agamemnon, where Agamemnon tries to leave but the he can't because there's no wind and 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 then he sacrifices his daughter the the same kind of thing happens in the aeneid i think where he he tries to leave and he can't and and has to wait and i don't know and and then is able to and 
Um, there's Dido and Aeneas, right? He spends time with Dido in Carthage. Um, she falls for him, but he can't commit to her, and he leaves. I think in the middle of the night, he abandons her, right? So that kind of fits this. And to me, the giveaway uh, was, because this one part of this movie I did not understand, there's a point where Cheyenne's car bursts into flame. That's right. He goes from yeah, one of these four by fours to another. Once he's, he's driving got a black four by four and then he's got a red four by four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he rented this huge truck. This huge pickup truck. That's right. And it, it blows up. It bursts into flame. Because he just changed the oil an hour earlier. Yeah, right. Because right. a guy that shows right. up and he's like, did you just change? Did you yeah, just so change what's that? Um, Aeneas's fleet all burst into flame. And I was like, ah, okay, that can't be a coincidence. Wow. So that's, that's where I was like, okay, then maybe there's something. Yeah, there is a point where, I don't know, one of the gods basically um, causes Aeneas's fleet to burst into flame. But it serves no purpose because he just gets another car. So it's just it's just one scene and it doesn't have any But then he gets a red pickup truck. <laughs> That's gotta mean something. <laughs> oh god, we're we're getting off the deep end. Okay. So I have to get to the end because the end is, is Oh, but really, also yes. I figure there is maybe a, a biblical thing because I mean there is a character called Mordecai. He is an avenging figure. I don't know. I didn't know if there was also a uh uh you know, Esther thing maybe i don't know i mean i you could <laughs> this is on uh, target is the red four by four but you could make an argument that he is that cheyenne's esther wearing makeup and is using his sexuality and his he does with fame the, yeah the to, granddaughter to get the to save his people right well he's not saving he's anything. not really saving anything but he is avenging he definitely is avenging. So he goes, he tracks down the Nazi in snow. He lives in a I don't know where he trailer is. in Huntsville in snow. No, no, it's not Huntsville. It's not. No, 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 because in Huntsville, he gets to Huntsville and he meets Robert, uh, uh, sorry, Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, yeah. And Harry Dean Stanton, yes, yeah. Oh, I know that German. Yeah, there's a German who lives here. He doesn't go by the name that you're using, but he's the only Alice German guy Lang. here and he lives in this cabin. And he goes and visits the cabin and there's nobody there and he's out of Leeds and you just see him sitting on the couch in this guy's cabin drinking Jägermeister and getting wasted. And then um, he goes back to his motel room and Mordechai Mittler is there. And Mordechai Mittler is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I found this guy. And he's not here. And he says, where is he? And he says he's at the end of life. So you never really find out where he is, but you see it. It does kind of look like the end of life. It's on this, I don't know what you'd call it, like a mesa or something. You're clearly way up in the mountains. It's completely covered in snow and ice. And nowhere else he's been has been snowy. Right? So it's got to be really high And there high are no up. tracks, by the way. There's no tracks around that car. It doesn't look like there is. No, it, no, there's no it's tracks. It's in the middle of nowhere. It looks like the ninth circle of hell. That's right. That's what it looks like. That's right. And then, yeah, the, he's, got like the, he's got like a trailer. And he has a gun. And Cheyenne has a gun. Cheyenne a has big a big gun. Cheyenne went and bought himself a gun. Yeah. And a very creepy looking guy talks to him about the gun. So he goes, he takes the gun. Midler stays in the car. 
Yeah. And he goes in. And the Nazi is telling him about his father and how he spent his life trying to find him and he, you know, and about how it's all because he humiliated his father one day in the lineup. He threatened his father with, uh, by, he threatened to set a German shepherd on him. And the, the father was so scared that he wet himself yes. and the Nazi laughed at him. And it was that humiliation that, that caused him to search for this Nazi guard his whole life. Okay. So that didn't resonate with me. There's something about that that seems unnecessary. Does does the guy is a guard at Auschwitz? Does he need another story more than that? Does he need a special personalized humiliation to validate the vengeance? Maybe he did. What is what are they telling us in that story? Well, the point seems to be that the crime itself was not so extreme. That this man. I mean, That's look, what I didn't like about it. Yeah, I know. And you know, I watched this uh, with Wendy, and she that she didn't like that either. She didn't. <laughs> her feeling was like it's a false what? note. We have to let this guy off the hook. He's like he's a Nazi guard in a ah! concentration camp. So I'm with I'm with Wendy. Yeah. It felt like a false note to me. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure overwritten why the they feel they have to minimize. His well, evil. Said nothing in the movie does that, by the way. Nothing in that movie will go out of its way to explain it. And that's an additional explanation that's put in that I don't know why. I don't know what that's about. Humiliation, bedwetting. I mean, not bedwetting. Peeing yourself. Like, is that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, then comes, which I think is one of the most moving scenes, right? You've got Midler outside. He's waiting. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And then the Nazi comes out by himself, naked, covering his privates with his hand. And he's walking, freezing, with his old, wrinkled body through the snow. And it's a very... Very moving catharsis. Yeah, it is very effective. I mean, more effect. I mean, if he would have shot him, it would have been awful. If he would have just left him, it would have been awful. There's some, there's something about that particular punishment because he looks exactly like the Jews that we've seen. Well, yes, the, that's sort that's, of the, yeah. I mean, he looks like the Jew, you know, freezing in the Holocaust. And to see him have to walk around naked, it, it's really... Well, so he looks sort of... Frail, skeletal. old, decrepit, near death. It's, it's, in that sense, we did in Glorious Bastards. It, you know, you want to see the guy suffer a little bit, but you don't want to see him scalped. Yeah. And I think Sorrentino does a really beautiful job of it in a way I haven't seen in a Holocaust movie before. Like somehow... It feels right. I, I like. I'm afraid to even say that on the podcast. Like it feels right, and of course, like to say that. Like, well, what do you mean? It feels right. He walks around in the snow. That that's not appropriate red, uh, punishment. It's probably not, but it feels right. And the way that the movie plays it is very impactful. I found and quite cathartic. Yeah, it feels 
like justice. It does. To some degree and has you been never done. feel that with any hol- I mean, maybe in Glorious Bastards, but that's a little extreme. Justice is not something that's found in these not in these Holocaust movies. Right. Right. And because also, I mean, this guy There is like, no justice. No, there is no appropriate He's justice. like ninety something years old. He's gonna be dead in a week anyway. But he still deserves to be but executed. Yes, yes, but something must be done. And clearly Cheyenne needs some sense of closure around this whole thing. And he humiliates the And he humiliates him. him. That's yeah. right. Which was just the father's complaint, the humiliation of pig pants. And maybe that's why you need that is because perhaps if you were led to believe that this man was a brutal murderer, right? That that went out of his way to mete out horrible punishment, then you might not have felt that this felt like justice. Maybe that's why if it, I'm on good, right from Schindler's list. Yeah. Would it have been appropriate if that was his? Well, there. I think there's something like Mordechai Midler spending 50 years to track down these... There's that one line where he says, what are you doing chasing down the Nazis? And the guy in the bar is like, aren't they all dead? And he says, no, apparently they're not. <laughs> well, Mordechai Midler, oh, when, he, when, when Sean Penn accuses him of being, you know, just in it for the publicity or whatever... And and Mordecai Midler says, um, I can't, can't remember the exact quote, but he says, you know, I've been hunting these guys, you know, I still in 1940, that shows you my commitment. And it's the same thing. It's, it's that thing of being stuck in in the past, that Mordecai Midler is is stuck in the past as well. But the, But he smiles, Hirsch. There's a look of satisfaction. He's Fact, proud of it. There's a look of satisfaction to see that Nazi walk naked through the snow. Oh, yeah, he loves it. That even surprises him. Yeah, because you see him in the car and you see him worried. He's not sure. <laughs> yeah, Sean Penn's going to kill this guy. What right. Cheyenne's going to do. And he knows Cheyenne has a gun. He knows he has a gun. He doesn't try to take the gun. He he clearly thinks that that Cheyenne shooting this guy is a live possibility and he doesn't want to do anything to stop it, but he's still not comfortable. And then, yeah, when he sees the guy walking out naked in the snow, he's like, he feels the same we do as the audience. He's like, yeah, that's, that's about right. It works. Yeah. Which is, I think, magic. It's like movie magic for that to work. It's quite astonishing. Well, especially after so much buildup. Yeah, he spent well, you have two no hours. idea what the heck is going to happen. If you've been watching this movie up no. to this point, you have no idea. I mean, it could be anything based upon what's come before. Okay, so then you have the conclusion. The where denouement. He, denouement, where he goes back to Dublin. Explain that, please, because I, I don't I understand. Explain it. But I don't understand so it. The last scene, pretty much right after that one. Yes, he's now grown up. He's is, done his duty. He's grown right. up. Right. So first you see, you don't even see him. You see Francis McDormand uh, at you know back home in Dublin, and you see her look up and smile and start running forward. So you know he's back home and and he's reunited with her. And then, but you know you don't see him. I don't think. I think you just see her reacting to his arrival. And then 
You... No, you couldn't see him because you don't see the reveal that he's. That's right. Well, you don't know if that's happened yet. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so then you see the old woman in the window, the the Tony's mom, Tony's mom, and you see a figure for, at the end of the street. You can't quite make out even who it is, and you see him walking forward, and you see her kind of get up from her chair, and she's. You see for she a moment a Tony. smile on her face. You think she must think it's Tony, and then. You see the character coming into focus, and it's Sean Penn, no makeup. Yeah, it's Sean Penn. Right, right. It's not right. his character. No, it just looks like Sean Penn. Yeah. Right. The, the he doesn't have the dyed hair. The hair is natural. There's no makeup. There's nothing. Just looks like a regular Sean Penn. And and you see him, and you see the woman sees him, and then you see her disappointed, and then you see her smile again, and you see Sean Penn smile, and you hear the the father. I mean. At various times during the movie, you've heard a voiceover of his father, and maybe out of his diary or out of the letters that he's written to the Nazi, because you find out that he wrote letters to the wife, uh, and you hear the voiceover where he's saying, and it's, he says, on the other side of the barbed wire, we saw the snow, and it was like God. Uh what does he say? Like stupid, like uncaring, um, stupefying, and uh, you know, awesome. Like the women that when we were young boys, we could only dream about. And that's the voiceover. And then, yeah, and then that's it. And you see, you know, Sean Penn smiling and the woman smiling. You don't know what's going on. It's like, is he replacing Tony? Is he Tony now? Like, what's what's going on? It's it's ambiguous. To say the least. To say the least. But my read of it is that he's done real truva, that he's changed in some fundamental way and he doesn't want to be the person that he's been before. And... Maybe he wants to be part of that family in in some way, and maybe he can be. I don't I don't know that he 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 wants to live a different kind of life and be a different kind of person. And he's left, you know, maybe his guilt and all that other stuff behind. I mean, that's the it's clearly a hopeful note. Yeah, right. And 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 but juxtaposed with this weird theology. From from the father's quotation, I, and what do you make of that? Of God as the snow? Yeah, but not the snow. Continue the verses. God is the of the same as the well as a snow and of a woman and a woman, right? Of uh, the God is 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 like the snow and also like a desirable woman. Yeah, I mean, when I was in medical school, we always wanted to come up with metaphors for God. I mean, that was sort of the job uh and my professor used to always challenge every student like come up with a metaphor for god come up with your own metaphor for god and whatever that might be and he said the best metaphor he ever got for a student for god was he asked every student rabbi gilman had every student come up with their own metaphor for god and he, he said the best one he ever got was a student of his said um god is like fred astaire and I am his dance partner. And he said that's the most beautiful metaphor for God he'd ever heard. So this idea that God is 
cold snow, right? This cold, just magnificent snow. And then, what is it, the girl who, what was this? What's the other one? Like certain women who, when we were young, we could only dream of. I mean, there's in both of those metaphors, you get the sense of something beautiful, but uncaring and untouchable. And I could see how behind the barbed wire of Auschwitz, you, you, you might be feeling that God is uncaring and untouchable, but not lost. Like not even behind. I feel, I feel like talking to you, I've seen this movie three times. I feel like I haven't seen it. Like I'm talking to you. I feel like I haven't seen it. It's amazing. It's really. It bears multiple viewings. <laughs> I think. I mean, I've seen it, yeah, three, four times. And every time I've seen it, I get something uh, new or different or pick up some subtlety or some image. Or it's really dense. Does, does Sorrentino have a Holocaust uh, association in his family? I don't or? think so. He's Catholic, I assume. He's Italian, down to his bones. He's, no, I don't know where this story came from uh, another italian guy that he's worked with i think um before no I, I i don't think there's any jewish connection in the creation of this film at all the only jew is involved is judd hirsch but how is that possible because <gasps> it's the same it's you know it's i guess it's universal it's, I think it is universal, you know? I mean, re a, a revenge story. Would you put it in the canon? Oh, wow. Um, I'd be tempted to. I'd be tempted to. Just because it's so It's so beautiful and strange. As a Holocaust film. Well, it's not really a Holocaust it film. Is. It's so many things. I mean, it it's, ends with a guy doing a naked walk in the snow. I mean, that's a Holocaust movie. Yeah, it's a Jews versus Nazi movie, but it's also a road movie. It's also an art movie. Um, it's this, and there's so much stuff we haven't even talked about. The guy in the bar in Michigan, the tattoo artist. Oh, do you like tattoos? I was just wondering that question. He meets this guy who also is a strange character talking about, you know, because he says, hey, I've been trying to get this this girl together, the sad girl together with a sad boy. And I realized maybe sadness isn't compatible with sadness. And the guy says, oh yeah, he's got this other weird voice. Right? He's like, oh yeah, I, I got my, I set up my aunt with a friend of mine, a barber, good barber. And she's uh, handicapped and uh, they're together. It's a beautiful thing. They, they, you know, they give each other companionship. And they're so appreciative. Yeah. And they, yeah, they're so grateful to me. Gratitude is a beautiful thing. God, you're really good with the lyrics. Wow, the lyrics, the, the words. Wow, and and yeah, exactly Sean Penn right. says, well, there's a lot of beautiful thing. A lot of beautiful things. And he says, yeah, but gratitude is the most beautiful thing. Like, there is a sense that he's learning. He's meeting all these people along the way. He's, he's learning about them. You know, it's almost a, a kind of a picaresque sort of 
journey. And when I watched this with Wendy, we, you know, we watched it like over three sittings. You can't hold it. And it doesn't really work. No, it doesn't. It, 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 this movie takes you on a journey and you kind of need to take the journey with with the film, especially because if you if you break it up, the relationships and everything gets so muddled, you can't even follow it anymore, you know? Um, so, yeah, I would put this in the can. I would. I just think it's it's unique. I don't know when I've seen a movie, like it's a little bit David Lynch, a little bit. Have you ever seen The Straight Story? No. This was David Lynch's G-rated movie that he did for Disney. You can watch it on Disney Plus. Is it good? It's really good. It's Richard Farnsworth. Um, he, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for it. He's great. He plays this. Oh, oh, Harry Dane Stanton's in it as well. So I, 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 I Sorrentino must have seen this film. Um, uh, Richard Farnsworth plays. I think it's Richard Farnsworth. What's his name? He plays this old guy who learns that his brother is dying. And he's, um, because he's old and his sight is messed up or something, he can't drive a car anymore. He lost his license. And so he gets on his mower. He gets like on his John Deere mower and he rides that across the country to go visit his dying brother, who's played by Harry Dean Stanton. And it's a beautiful movie, and it's a lot like this one. It's a, it's a road movie, it's a cross-country, and it's the same thing of these, you know, middle America. Um, so a lot of it reminded me of... And there are other sort of Lynchian... You know, the tattoo artist is sort of almost right out of a David Lynch movie, right? Um, oh, and I think we should talk for a moment, 2008. Yes, very odd to have interspersed with Barack Obama and Sarah Palin. And that Barack Obama speech, I looked it up. That was known as Barack Obama's speech on fatherhood. So there's that. No, it's perfect. Because I was just, as you saw me looking off in the distance, I was thinking about orphans. Like, these, is, these are people who are raising themselves. Mm -hmm. You have Cheyenne, who's clearly, he's raising himself. right? The people who don't have parents, Batman, orphan. You have people who are forced to raise themselves and are forced to come to adulthood on their own without parents, without a guide. Yeah. They're looking for a home, but they can't find the home because there's no one at home. Yeah. Which and, is why the woman waiting at home is so interesting at the end of the Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we could, America, never, we could, we could spend years. We never <laughs> put the, no, you couldn't get way. to the bottom of it, but he's definitely traveling through a sort of depressed America. You know, like when he gets to the motel, I think maybe the first motel he shows up at, right? <laughs> I'm he sorry. Says, so I have to stop you. I, I don't remember when there wasn't a depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 2008. It's been a long time. 2008 yeah. was when particularly bad. I, I don't remember the upswing since then. Go on. Well, I'm not yeah. talking emotionally depressed. I'm talking economically depressed. Yeah, he can fall. Yes, um, no, sure. He shows up at the motel and and the, the couple that are in the motel are like doing a jigsaw puzzle and they framed the jigsaw puzzles that they've done it's hanging on the wall of these jigsaw puzzles. Anyway, and he says to them, do you have, uh, are there any rooms available? And the woman says, they're all, they're all available. Yeah, you just get the feel. You know, it's 2008, you hear Obama speaking. And that speech, it's interesting. I looked it up. You couldn't make that speech today. Uh, it's all about how, um, you know, black kids are in trouble because they have no fathers and, and black parents really need to just get their act together. 
you, you could yeah, but you could say that about Cheyenne's father. Uh, you could yes. make the same argument about Cheyenne's father. Uh, not around. Yeah, to worry about hunting Nazis. So yeah. the father needs I'm to stay home. It was a different era. But, is but it's I'm on saying. point for the movie. What was Sarah? Yeah. What was the Sarah Palin speech? Oh, I Did don't, I don't know. You just see Sarah Palin for like you know one second. second. You don't hear even what she she says. But yeah, it's it's at a moment. I mean, that's a, it's like a weird, surreal thing, but it's also you know, in a specific place in a specific time, which is June June two thousand eight is when Barack Obama made that speech, which is sort of the depth of the Great Recession. And what's Barack Obama's uh, book that he wrote? What's it called? Well, he wrote a few. There was, oh, Songs one, from My Father. Letters, right, 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 dreams, dreams. Dreams of My Father. Dreams from My Father. It's so all Dreams about, from My Father, so Dreams that, of My that's Father. That's it. So that's it. That's it. It's all about that. It's all about this. Yeah. I mean, I. I yeah. Fathers and sons. Yeah. That's all there. He hasn't seen his dad in 30 years. Barack Obama was raised without a father. Yeah. It's all, it all seems to be looped around there. Right? And who else is an orphan? Esther. Also an orphan. Raised that's by right. Mordechai. That's, that's right. Yeah. And the father is, you know, when his father dies, he, was, he goes to see Mordecai. It's all, you know, that's all he has. He's got a cousin who's, I don't know, doesn't really have much to do. So the crisis is that no one, no one's an adult. We don't grow up. We have to grow up ourselves. We have to go on our own journey. I don't know. Well, you have to forgive your parents in order to grow up. That's part of it. He can, which he, I think, by the end is able to do. By embodying his father's quest, you know, (laughs) um, he's, and he does, I think he says at some point, like, that he realizes that his, you know, when he's with the, when he's with the granddaughter and her son, he says, I realize now that all parents love their children and I've blown it. It's too late for me now to have kids. I, I, I missed having kids and I really lost something important. And she says, well, better late than never. He says, no, late is late. Late, I can't late is late. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he realizes that, yeah, okay, maybe my father did love me. But just didn't, you know, didn't know what to do with me, maybe. But this idea I have that my- And that's God. Avinu Malkain, right? You want to go back to Teshuva. God loves you, but God is like snow. God is like a beautiful girl you can't touch. God loves you, but God's not there, and God's not going to show you that affection, but God still loves you. Yeah. Maybe. Heschel said that as a uh, report, uh, on Revelation, the entire Torah is Midrash. It's basically, what that means, according to Heschel, was that we recorded some sort of theophany, some sort of revelation, interaction between beings and God happened. But everything else, is that's just an interpretation of that happening from the human being perspective, because we can't ever know what that experience of revelation was like. It's just all... It's all midrash. It's all interpretive ways that we come to understand because we can never actually touch the source. Just like that final quote from his father, which is, God is there, but we can't touch God. I don't know. 
I don't know. We could definitely. I mean, we could watch this movie again. We We'd could probably have a whole bunch of other things. That's right. We say. might need more liquor, though. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it belongs in the canon. Okay. Is there a most? Is there a Jewish moment in this film? I mean, the uh, the the end uh, will stick with me forever. Oh, brief the sidebar. Nazi walking through. We got to do brief sidebar oh, on David yeah. Byrne. Oh, be fair. Okay, sure. Little brief sidebar. Yes, I've never seen the Talking Heads concert. I've never seen the Talking Heads. I have seen David Byrne. I saw him um, in a sessions so West Fifty Fourth. Is that what that was? How that was, was that? Uh, right. They did a series on PBS of these sessions. You were there. How was I that? knew somebody who had tickets, and he came out in a. I think it was like a red jumpsuit. Not jumpsuit, bodysuit, like skin tight bodysuit with flames. <laughs> um, and he was doing, uh, I all like Brazilian music. It was when he was into into Brazilian music, and that was the kind of thing he was doing. And I think he shared. Did he share the bill with Ruben Blades, or is that just my imagination? Is that a different session I went to? I'm not sure, but yeah, I did see him. He looked great. He sounded incredible it was it was you know it was all this like brazilian type music and he was he was great i mean he's talking heads were also i rewatched stop making sense recently after watching of uh, this that's a oh my gosh it's just amazing i never saw it you never seen stop making sense i want to see it tonight obviously oh my gosh well i mean it is widely considered maybe the greatest concert movie ever made um it's it's all the great Talking Heads music. It's him in the big suit. Um, you you sweat just watching it. I mean, he's just like the amount of energy coming out of that band and the people there. And they perform with these, you know, amazing people. Like the keyboardist is like, I can't remember his name. He was like the keyboardist from Parliament. Um, they're all insane. Yeah, they're, I mean, they've got great sidemen playing with them. And, and yeah, Byrne is like... He, he he's like dancing. He at some point he just starts running around. He, he he basically does the equivalent of running a marathon in terms of the number of calories that he burns yeah, during that show. It's just you know all of them are just working so hard and having so much fun, and and like a backup singers and it's just you know it's like oh you couldn't imagine anything better than being in that room, you know, with that band listening to them and watching them. You just couldn't, that's the way you feel watching it. It's like, that would be the most, there's nothing better. I can't imagine anything better than, than being in that room. And, and I then, had no idea you were such a large talking heads. I'm not. That way you can't imagine anything better than being at a talking heads concert. But that's the power of the film. That's the power of the film directed by Jonathan Demi. I see. No I slouch. have concert films. No. Yeah. Not. A th I mean, I didn't see the last waltz until last year. What so, do you think about that? I thought it's okay. that Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison killed it. That's what I think about that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, like, watch it for Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison. Yeah. It's not great all the way through. And there's also, like, there's all the interviews and those stuff. Stop making sense. It's just the concert. There's no backstage. Like, it's none of that stuff. It's none it's of the, just like, the show. It's not like, oh, we're going to like. I didn't see American Utopia either. Did you watch it? I haven't that? watched it. I want to. I, I think that's. Is there a narrative the there? I think it's just the show. It's just the show. Well, because it's uh, it's his stage Broadway show. Broadway show, yeah. You know, and then it's just a filmed show. And that's what, I mean, stop making sense. They did it over like- So what does David Byrne have to do with the Holocaust? Absolutely nothing. 
no, I don't know where David, I don't know if he's like, I don't know if Sorrentino was like, I want David Byrne to do the music. And so let's put him in the movie. I, I don't know if he's like found the setting and then there's like David Byrne kind of fits. But, but it, it works. It I mean, works. It, it, it doesn't works, make but it. it's unsellable. So it's called This Must Be the Place, which tells me nothing about the movie other than reminds me of the song. And I see a picture of Sean Penn in makeup. So that's why no one went to see it. Didn't make any yeah. sense. No, no, but most terrible marketing. You got to figure most filmmakers, they would just be like, okay, we're going to call This Must Be the Place. We'll use the song. And that's it. <laughs> but this, you, six David times, Burke shows six up. Six times he plays the song. Yeah, different in different characters. ways, yes. right? Different treatments. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, in this movie, it's like, oh my gosh, there's David Byrne performing <laughs> As the song. And then he shows up in a scene with our protagonist. Another very over-the-top scene from Sean Penn. Uh, yeah, that was the one scene where he kind of cr- cranks it all the way up. You know, but you got to figure. He doesn't have an acting partner working with him. Number one, and also, I don't know, my gut is that maybe he had like a bunch of scenes like that, and that's the only one that made the final cut, (laughs) you know? I mean, I think Sorrentino also has to be great at working with actors. I mean, he does get an amazing performance out of Sean Penn, and everybody, Francis McDormand is great, Harry Dean Stanton is great, Uh, the woman who plays the granddaughter is great. Francis McDormand, the character is... It's weird. Yeah. I don't. It's yeah, outrageously unusual. Yes, it's outrageously unusual. I mean, you see her like on a ladder in the fourth story at a fire. It's so strange. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how this guy makes. I mean, this is one of this is this is one of those movies. It's a work of art, and how you can tell it's a work of art is you cannot reverse engineer it. Like you can't. You got to. I mean, my. You makes you think. How did he do this? <laughs> I mean, this is a compelling, interesting movie that keeps you interested for two hours and and makes you feel, really feel things. And, and you have no idea where it's going. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it came from. Sometimes you're like, what is happening right now? This guy is in a cabin of an ex, not ex, this guy's a cabin of a Nazi in Utah and and outside the French door is an albino bison. What is going on? But you know what the bison it it has impact. Now that you're talking you know right? This is sacrifice. Who was sacrificed instead, right? You so you have the the bison sacrificed instead of the Nazi. He's got an eye for the impactful image. Oh, yeah. No question. Oh, that's his gift. You know? Oh, and also the camera is like always moving. That's another thing I realized on like a third or fourth viewing. Um, and with, you know, with the young Pope, it's, it, I, I noticed that as well. The, the, and, and actually it reminded me a little bit of Kubrick. Um, there's the, you know, the, there's very smooth motion of the camera moving in, moving out, sometimes following a character so that even in scenes where there's not a lot of action, it feels like something is happening because the camera is giving you that 
that movement. And because this is not like, it's not, it's no car chases in this film. It's not a whole lot of action, but yet it's very engaging. And I think the way that he uses the camera is, um, is a lot of that. And it, it also uh, makes you feel a certain way. Kind of sometimes the way the Kubrick does, you know, that you feel somewhat removed, but also interested and engaged and moving along with with the movie you know and 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 he does these like super close-ups right there's that scene in the car where the close-up is like so close all you see is judd hirsch's eyes like fill the entire frame so interesting i don't know i like this movie Really uh, clearly, is there literature on this? Is there analysis? Is there scholarship? I mean, I did look up some reviews. Uh, people liked it. Uh, as I say, Al Rashi, uh, Roger Ebert, he 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 liked it. Um, it was generally pretty well received. Uh, but people were like, I think, didn't know quite exactly what to make of it. And neither but I do think, we. No, I think everybody liked Sean Penn's performance. People appreciated the aesthetic elements. Sorrentino, I think, was already recognized as just somebody who made beautiful films um, in in Italy. Um, so yeah, it was well received critically, but yeah, just like nobody. And yeah, I, nobody and saw it. I would recommend if you're if you're an artist, if you're a creative type, um, this is a is a really impactful. Um, movie uh that deals with concepts you don't see dealt with as creative and as artistically as this and so my wife is a poet and as i mentioned this is the only holocaust movie that she'll watch because it has an artist's sensibility to it and allows you to engage with it yeah we don't get that ever well look it's in a, in in european movies i think you get it more right i i think there's I'm surprised when I see an American movie that's any good. I mean, I just don't expect it. Well, because you can't make, like I said, there's no appetite for it. And and now after this, right, after the destruction of the 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 movie theater essentially, um yeah, I think it's pretty much over. That's really depressing. It's I would hate really for depressing. the film industry to go the way of the music industry. Um, if you can't monetize your art, it's going to be a problem. Well, we're already there. We're already, we're already there. There's, there's massive tentpole movies. There's indie cinema. I mean, you can make a movie for no money with no stars, um, for, for nothing. On an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can film it with your iPhone. Well, you know, I mean, the cost of even, you know, you don't have to pay for film anymore, right? So the the cost of, of making a movie, yeah, has fallen drastically. So you can do that stuff. Um, but again, you know, you can't make the kinds of movies that people used to make 40, 50 years ago you you can't be a big name director making a movie with big name stars for 20 30 million dollars it's a that's 
that's I think pretty un- unless maybe you're a P.T. Anderson or a Martin Scorsese or or that other director like that. who I can't stand <laughs> who's you know, that? who did Rushmore, which was beautiful. I loved Rushmore. I've hated everything he's done since. Wes Anderson. Yes, Rushmore is a beautiful movie. Rushmore's really great. Everything else is terrible that he's done. Have you seen Fantastic Mr. Fox? No. That's I really good. I, I, I got off after Steve Zissou, I got off the train. Yeah, no, no. I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is great because it's animated. It's uh, stop motion animation. It's from the Roald Dahl book uh-huh. of the same name. And you can watch it with your kids. Okay. Right? Maybe I will do that. And it's good because, you know, his problem is that his movies are just so tightly controlled that the actors just don't have a chance to breathe. Nothing really has a chance to breathe, I feel, in a lot of his films. Um, it's all contrived. And, and Rushmore, he hadn't quite closed the vice. And Schwartzman um, is amazing in that movie. Schwartzman's Bill great. Murray's amazing in yeah, that Yeah, everybody's movie. great. Royal Tenenbaums. Oh. Hackman is able to really act, but nobody else really, because Hackman is just a freaking genius. He'll, you know, he's somebody that he's no matter great. what he does in every movie, in every role, you always feel at every moment that he's doing what he wants to do. And... And he's the, and that's why he could succeed in Royal Tenenbaums because even with that tight directorial control, you felt that he was still doing, you know, what he wanted to do. That everything that he was doing on screen was coming from him and and not from the director and the other actors. Just he was just acting circles around everybody. Um, but Fantastic Mr. Fox, because it's animated, doesn't the control doesn't bother you. Because you accept, yeah, somebody's there moving the thing, and of course it's all completely controlled because it's it's animation. So it it his weakness works for him, you know. Because in animation, you you know you need that. You you want that crazy attention to to detail and and everything. So I I recommend that. That's maybe after Rushmore, my favorite Wes Anderson film but uh, yeah bottle I don't, I don't rocket's not terrible either yeah but it's indie small it's very small and the the work of a first-time director clearly <laughs> right i'd rather watch that than life aquatic i would rather watch that i don't know i haven't seen uh grand budapest either me neither oh there's uh, all the french dispatch is the new one too and the fresh dispatch is the new one that but it's sort of i that's they all I, look the same they all look the same yeah, you're getting Wes Anderson. You know what you're getting. I, can't I mean, <laughs> it's like the but Rushmore. I loved Rushmore. Oh my gosh, I that movie was so good. I saw it in an art house in Manhattan. Like it was. Yeah, but you feel there's stuff in that movie that's just kind of odd, and you know, it all worked though. It all worked, and then it just became. Why are we talking about Wes Anderson? Yeah, it just I became don't know. Yeah, because he can make. You know, he can make those kinds of movies. It was very affecting. I there's heard. not many people that can do it. All right. Well, I think we've... I think we've uh, I think we've talked this. through yes. this movie. Um, What's next? We like it. We do like it. It might even be in the canon. That's right. Um, and it's amazing. We are... You just heard us put a movie in the canon that you have never heard of. And that's special. Most likely, but I hope this gives people an opportunity to seek out this movie and, and watch it, because it, it really is an experience. Well, I'm Rabbi Dan Ain. And I'm Ben Chin, and this has been The Jewish Frame. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. ¶¶